Well, last week we uh, launched a new series, which we've entitled, Are We There Yet? Getting From Here to There. And this series is based on the Israelites' journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. And during this series, we're going to be considering what will be necessary to make the journey from here to there, from where we currently are to where we believe God is leading us. And I mentioned last week that you've, you've heard us talk a lot over the last couple of years about the type of church that we want to be. An apprentice-making church because we believe that that is God's plan for us. And so most of our conversation has centered around the destination, what a disciple-making church looks like, what it will look like when we arrive there and we become this disciple-apprentice-making church. Now, the reason we put our emphasis there is because we believe that good leadership paints a picture of the future that is so vivid that people long desire and pursue it at any cost. So you attempt your best to paint a picture of the future. But we also believe that good leaders prepare people for the journey of getting to the future destination. And so during this particular series, we will be considering what we can learn from this biblical account that will help us as individuals and as a church to successfully navigate that journey. And I really believe that if we can embrace these necessities, we will successfully arrive at our destination and having benefited significantly from this journey. And so last week, we started with the first necessity, which we called godly discontentment. And we quoted a number of people who take credit for this quote, and we said this, change occurs when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. And so if you weren't here last week, I would strongly encourage you to go into our website and listen to last week's sermon, because I think it's very important to this series. Now today we're going to look at the second necessity, which I've entitled Committed Leadership. Let's just watch this media clip together. Now stay calm. We are going around the leaf. Around the leaf? I, I, I don't think we can do that. Oh, nonsense. This is nothing compared to the twig of 93. That's it. That's it. Good. You're doing great. There you go. There you go. Watch my eyes. Don't look away. And here's the line again. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Soil. <laughs> Good job, everybody. If the journey of life was a straight line, 
if getting to our destination as believers and at a, a church was a straight line, if moving from here to there, faithfully pursuing God's plan for our lives and church was simply a straight line with no interruptions and no challenges and no obstacles to stand in the way, then leadership would not be necessary. It would just be a mindless line. It wouldn't be necessary. But the truth is, getting from here to there is not a straight line that's devoid of interruptions and challenges and obstacles. So we need committed leadership to help us navigate the journey. Now, many books have been written about Moses as a model of leadership and the many leadership characteristics or traits that you can see modeled in the life of Moses. Today, what I want to do is I want to put all of that aside and I want to simply consider five leadership traits that I have personally observed as I'm reading the story of Moses in the Old, Tem- in the Old Testament, how he has demonstrated leadership in leading Egypt to the promised land. Now, these five traits, I believe, will be absolutely necessary for all of us who are in some level of leadership at EPC. And there are many of you who are, and there are many of you who may not be in positions of leadership, but you are leaders because you influence. And so what makes one a leader is not the position you hold, but the ability you have to influence. And so it's important for all of us who are leaders at EPC as we embark on the journey from here to there, from where we currently are in our individual lives and church to where God is leading us. So let's take a look at these five. First, Moses was humble. Last week we talked about Moses fleeing Egypt for his life because he stepped in to protect a Hebrew slave who had been mistreated by his slave master and ended up killing the slave master and Pharaoh found out and and wanted to kill Moses and so he's fleeing for his life. Moses fled to Midian. There he met a man named Jethro, married his daughter, and worked for him as a shepherd for 40 years. The day of Moses' call to lead God's people from Egypt to the promised land was a day like any other day up to that moment. He's alone in the desert. He's tending the sheep when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the form of a fire in a bush. Now Moses knows that the bush was on fire, but what caught his attention is that the bush was not burning up. The bush just kept burning, but it wasn't being consumed. And of course, that's unusual. And so it captured his curiosity, and he headed over to investigate and to see what's going on. And it was at that moment that God spoke to him. And God introduced himself to Moses, and he said, Moses, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. 
I see their misery. I'm concerned about their suffering, and I'm about to do something about it. I'm going to rescue them. And guess what, Moses? I have chosen you as the one who's going to do it. You're going to lead them. And so in Exodus 3.11, Moses responded to God and he says, But God, who am I? Who am I? This is, this is too big for me. He, he doesn't see himself as one who could do something so significant. So then God kind of repeats himself to a degree. And then when he's finished, Moses responds again. See, God, here's the problem. I don't have good communication skills. I don't have good communication skills. And in verse 3, he, he begins to plead. And he says, please, God, send someone else to do it. Now, I want us to notice that 40 years in the wilderness has changed Moses. When he was in Egypt, he was in a high position of power. He was from the household of Pharaoh. And he acted in, that, in this moment in his own strength, to confront the injustice of God's people. He's leading down from a position of power and authority in his own strength to accomplish his plan, which fails. Now we have him 40 years later, and God is calling him to lead up, to go to one who is more powerful than Moses, to go to one who's above him, go to Pharaoh, and ask Pharaoh for the freedom of God's people, and suggest on how this can get done. Well, Moses feels inadequate for the task. I believe the wilderness has made Moses humble. He's not trying to get out of the responsibility. He's not making up excuses so he has to get involved in something he'd rather not. He genuinely feels inadequate to do what God is asking him to do. And ironically, it is his humility that makes him the ideal candidate. He feels inadequate, he is humble, and that's what makes him qualified. Now, in our current culture, there's an endless supply of information, books, resources, conferences on the topic of leadership. And I want to say today that the church has benefited from these resources as we've been able to apply good leadership practices. We've been able to understand strategic planning principles. We've learned how to effectively communicate vision so that people understand and move along. We've learned how to run churches efficiently. We've learned a lot. We've benefited a lot from the leadership culture within our culture. But I also would suggest today that we've been somewhat disadvantaged when we approach the church exclusively like a business, failing to see that as much as there are similarities between the church and a business, there's also great differences. The church is not a business. It is not a business. And I've learned also that there's a difference between a good idea and a God idea. 
And so Moses wasn't in the desert for 40 years playing out in his mind his vision, his dream to go back to Egypt and lead his people out. He wasn't building his strategic plan. He wasn't focused on it. He had moved on. He didn't go to God with his dream, with his idea and say, God, this is my dream of what I want to do for you. Would you help me fulfill it? No. The idea was God's. The initiative was God's. It was a God idea. It was a God idea. I attended a conference a few years ago where we were told that we needed to tell our dream to God and He would grant it. Because God's like a genie in a lamp, right? I disagreed and I still do. The dream, the idea, the vision, the plan, it's always God's. And he births it in the hearts of those he desires to use to accomplish his plan. Now, regularly, as you may understand, people bring me ideas. People often bring me ideas. When Jen and I were first married, her dad used to give me suggestions for what to preach on this coming Sunday. Regularly, I'm bombarded with ideas that people have of changes we could make or should make as a church. And some of them are good ideas, and some of them are God ideas. And we implement them because they contribute to where God is leading us, and we know that, and so they fit. So we implement them. But many of them are not. And our resistance to implement them, and you need to understand this, is not based on arrogance or control or thinking that we're the only ones that can have the right ideas. There's reasons we don't. Like, sometimes it's the motivation of the idea. The ideas are ideas that cater to or meet the preferences of the person. Hey, you know what? I think we should do this. Why? Because I would like that a lot better. Or sometimes the ideas are founded in the opinions or perspectives of the person, but they don't represent the congregation as a whole. It's just their own individual. They may be good ideas. They may be ideas that would provide personal gain for the one with the idea, but they lack an understanding often for the bigger picture of where God is leading us in a particular time. But a God idea contributes to the vision that God has given us. It never conflicts with God's vision. God's ideas never conflict with God's vision for us, and we must stand firm in that. And so when God gives a vision, it's a two-edged sword because there's an excitement for what God wants to do. God says, I want to do this. That's great, God. You know, we want to do it. We want to do whatever it is you want to do. But then there's also an overwhelming reality of how inadequate we are to do it, to do it. And so if we as individuals and as a church are going to go from here to there, from where we are to where God is leading us, it's going to require committed leaders who are humble, who hear from God, who are overwhelmed by the thought of what will be required to do it, feel helpless to do it, and will not allow good ideas that do not contribute to the big picture, to take precedent over the God idea as good as the good idea may be. Does that make sense? 
See, then and only then will we be positioned to do what God is asking of us. Secondly, Moses was prepared. When you study the life of Moses, you see that it's divided actually into three nice, tidy little packages of 40 years. Last week, we said Pharaoh's attempt to limit the growth of the Hebrews, and in doing so, he decreed that all male Hebrew children under three be drowned. Moses is born to a Hebrew family. His mother hid him in the weeds in the Nile River in a waterproof basket, sister watching out for him. Pharaoh's daughter and the entourage came to bathe in the Nile, heard the baby crying, retrieved him from the water. Pharaoh's daughter decided at that moment she's going to keep him as her own. The sister steps in and says, I happen to know a Hebrew woman who can nurse him. And so Moses' mother gets paid to nurse Moses in her own home until he's old enough to go to the palace. Moses grew up in the palace. In Acts chapter 7, in the sermon of Stephen, just before he's stoned to death, he's talking about Moses and he says this, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. He was a lot more powerful than he gave himself credit for. He received the best training in Egypt. When he was 40 years old, he killed the Egyptian slave master and fled to Midian, which brought to conclusion the first third of his life. The second 40 years of Moses' life was spent in the wilderness hills of Midian tending sheep. He's a long way from Egypt, the glamour of the palace, the crowds of people, the things that he had trained his whole life for. He spends his day alone in the mountains tending sheep. He's a man with great potential. He's a man with great ability. He's a man that's been given the best training, but all of it seems wasted and all, it all seems to be okay with him. He's just content to be out there away from it all. Now, as mentioned, God is preparing him during this time. First of all, in humility, but secondly, where's he going to spend the last 40 years of his life? Well, he's going to spend it in the wilderness. And so he's training in this middle section for his final section. He's going to spend it in the wilderness, but not alone. He's going to spend it with approximately probably over a million people leading them to a new land. And so prior to entering the promised land, then Moses died at age 120. And so we see the three 40-year segments of his life. I want us to understand this morning that God does not randomly drop a vision, a plan, or a dream into our lives. Everything with God is intentional. It's strategic. It has a purpose. And so God has been preparing you your entire life for what He is calling you to at this moment and this season in your life. I want to say that again. God has been preparing you your entire life for what He is calling you to at this moment and this season of your life. He uses your family of origin. He uses the place you grew up in. He uses the people who have impacted your life along the way positively and negatively. He uses your education. He uses your work experience. He uses your health challenges and your circumstances, both positive and negative. 
He uses your losses. He uses your gains. He uses your hobbies, your interests, your skills. He uses your marriage, your kids, your job. Nothing is wasted with God. Nothing is wasted with God. He uses all of it to prepare you for this moment in time. And it's not a coincidence that we are all here at EPC at this time in history. I believe that that is not a coincidence. We are not here by a coincidence at this point in time in this church. God calling us together towards something great together. And so perhaps like Esther in the Old Testament, as she's about to go into the king and risk her life on behalf of the plight of her people, she says that we too have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. That our lives have culminated to this moment in time. And God has brought us together in this moment in time to do something significant for his kingdom. And so that's why we must pray, make it count, not take it away, because God wants to use it all, the good and the bad, the painful and pain and the joy. God has led us. He has caused our lives to intersect. He's brought us together from this moment, from all kinds of backgrounds and places, to this moment in time so that we can embrace His vision and do something significant for him. You see, committed leaders recognize that God has prepared them for this moment. And they give all of who they are to see it realized. The highs, the lows, the victories, the pain, the losses, and the gains. Moses is secure. In Exodus 4.14, God's frustrated with Moses. You say, well, how do you know God's frustrated? Well, when he says the Lord's anger burned against Moses, that's a good indication that God is a little frustrated. Moses is resisting because he genuinely feels inadequate. Yet God is saying, Moses, you can do this. You can do this. And so there's this battle that's going on. So God says to Moses, okay, I have an idea. I have an idea. Why don't we get your brother Aaron to help you with this? Aaron is a good speaker. You guys will work well together. It'll be as if you are one. I'm going to give you the words to say. I'm going to teach you what to do. And you guys are going to work as a team. This will be a team. What you lack in abilities, Aaron's going to provide for you. Now, we don't have to go back very far in God's story to see that two brothers coming together doesn't always end well. You know, we got Cain and Abel, right? Cain is jealous of Abel, jealous of his relationship with God, and so he kills him. You got Jacob and Esau. Jacob wants Esau's birthright. He wants what he feels he's entitled to, but his brother is getting. And so he deceives both Esau and his father Isaac in order to steal it away. We got some good history up to this point that putting two brothers together in an arrangement is not a good scenario. But there's no resistance here on the part of Moses. Okay, 
He accepts God's suggestion. He goes back to his father-in-law and says, you know what? God wants me to lead the people out of Egypt. I'd like your permission to, uh, as a courtesy, to be released. And he's not threatened in the least by Aaron helping him to do it. In Exodus 18, Moses has already led the Israelites out of Egypt with Aaron's help. They're in the wilderness. His father-in-law Jethro heard of everything that the Lord had done for Moses and the people. And so he came and met up with Moses. He brought Moses' wife with him. He brought Moses' kids to meet up with Moses in the wilderness. Happiest day of Moses' life, right? Great, the family's here. (laughs) It's a great reunion. And they begin to reiterate the story. You should have seen what God did. You should have seen the plagues and the miracles. And you should have seen the Red Sea. And when we crossed over and God, oh, it's just all miraculous. What an amazing story. How good was God? And they offer up sacrifices to God. And then they, they share a meal together. And then the next day Moses got up and he took his seat to serve as judge for the people. And the people stood around from morning until evening. And Jethro noticed what's going on here. He says, you know, Moses, what are you doing? Why are you the only judge for all these people? And why is this going on all day long? And so Moses explained, he says, you got to understand, these people have disputes and they need to be settled and they need to know God's will. And so they come to me and I, I give them direction about God's will for their disputes. And Jethro said to him, he says, Moses, what you're doing is not good. This is going to wear you out. You can't do this by yourself. And so he gave him some advice. Father-in-laws are good at that. Right? He gave him some advice. Why don't you be their representative before God? Why don't you teach them God's ways? Why don't you show them how they should live as you model your leadership among them and you call them to action, but appoint leaders over small groups of the people to deal with these petty day-to-day issues? If they're serious issues, they can, they can bring them to you, but otherwise, they'll handle it for you. It's a win-win, Moses. They get the help that they want, and you aren't under the pressure. And so here's Moses, who had just led about a million people away from Pharaoh and his army with miracles, and he's out in the middle of the wilderness, and his father-in-law, who wasn't even there, is now advising him on how he should lead. So how does he respond? Well, we see in Exodus 18.24, Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He wasn't threatened by Jethro's suggestion. Moses was secure in his leadership. He knew that God had called him. He knew what he was called to do. There was no insecurity that caused him to protect his leadership or to reject others but come alongside to help him. Jethro's suggestion fit with God's bigger plan. Insecurity creates dysfunctional leadership. Insecurity creates dysfunctional leadership. Leadership that insists on doing everything yourself, otherwise it won't be done good enough. Leadership that keeps others out because, well, I don't really want to share the spotlight and the attention when things go really good. Or leadership that arrogantly believes that God can only work through you. Or leadership that emphasizes the leader over those they lead. Now this type of dysfunctional leadership sometimes 
thrives within the context of the local church. If you've been in church long enough, you know that this dysfunction sometimes and actually in some places often thrives. And interestingly, sometimes the local church contributes to this type of culture when the people demand that, the only, that only certain leaders count. Only certain leaders measure up in terms of ministry. So I'll give you some examples that I've seen. Someone is sick and they're in the hospital. And there's a visitation committee. And there are members of the congregation. And over the course of four or five days, four or five people from the congregation who care about the person go in and visit. And it's a great visit and it's positive. And they often will report back and say, Pastor, I just want you to know, I saw so-and-so today and you know they're doing well or they found out some bad news or whatever. There's a communication back. But guess what? As good as those visits are and appreciated, until I walk in the room, it doesn't count. Yeah, I had five visitors, but pastor hasn't been here. Or it's a prayer time and there's multiple people. Well, I only want the pastor to pray for me. I only want the pastor to pray for me. Or sometimes I want the pastor to be the one who encourages me or talks about my dispute and helps me to settle it. Now, might I suggest this morning that sometimes not going and being available is not because we're lazy or because we don't care and we lack compassion. Sometimes it's strategic so that we can actually do what God has called us to do. Because we have to look here at Scripture. When Moses is overwhelmed and his father-in-law says, listen, your time is best used over here. No one else can do that, but they can do this. So let them do this so you can do what you need to do. When Moses reaches a point with the 70 elders that he can't take it anymore, God says, I'm going to take the spirit that's on you and put it on 70 elders and they'll help you do it. Spread it around. We have to look at the book of Acts. The widows and orphans of Greek origin are being neglected and and the apostles are getting involved. It's an important issue. It's the first major crisis in the history of the church. It's an important, it's a big one. And they decided, listen, this is important. This needs to be cared for. But this is not the best use of our training and calling and what God has called us to do. So let's appoint these elders who will make sure that works so we can continue doing this over here that God wants us to do. We read in Ephesians a listing of the different gifts of leadership that God gives to the church. And then there's a little sentence in there that says, to equip the people to do the work of the ministry. That's the purpose of church leadership. You know, I'd like to have a dollar for every time someone said to me, well, you're the pastor, that's what we pay you to do. No, it isn't. That might be what you pay me to do, but that's not what God pays me to do. He doesn't pay me to do it all. He pays me to prepare the saints to do the work of the ministry. That's my calling. That's my job is to prepare you to do the work of the ministry. If I'm doing it all, I may be pleasing you, but I'm failing God. I'm failing God. And that's really hard because as leaders, you know, we want to please people. 
right? We don't want that. But at the end of the day, you got to please God. And our role is to, as leaders, not just pastors, but as leaders, is to prepare people to do the work of the ministry. That's what God is calling us to. And so we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's God's idea that we're pursuing and we're more secure in our leadership when we know that. We're more willing to share the load with those who God wants to use when we know that it's God's idea. You see, secure leaders who know who they are in God and know what God has called them to do, do what is absolutely necessary to go from here to there. And so they're secure in their leadership. Fourthly, empowered. Moses was empowered by the Holy Spirit. If we debate that and wonder about it, we just have to go to Numbers 11. I just referred to it. You can't take the Spirit that's on Moses and give it to 70 others if he's not already empowered by the Spirit. So that's where we know that, that's one place that we know that he's experienced. He's having this total breakdown. He can't go any further. The people he's leading are stubborn and entitled. They've mastered the art of complaining despite God's care and provision for them. And Moses can't deal with it anymore, so he cries out to God, and God puts his spirit on these 70 others. In Exodus 4.1, when Moses says, he, you know what, God, you know, I don't know if this is a good idea. And he says, like, what's going to happen if I go to the people and they won't listen to me? I mean, it's okay that you want me to do this, but, but what happens if they, if they won't listen to me? And so God says, what's in your hand? Well, it's a staff. We'll throw it on the ground. And it became a snake. And then he said, pick it up. And it became a staff again. And he put his hand inside his robe and brings it out. There's leprosy. Puts it in. It's clean. You know, water turning to blood and so on. Signs that God is with Moses. That Moses is God's representative. That he's empowered by God's spirit to do this task. In Exodus 4.12, God assures Moses that he would help him. He says, you know what? This is not going to happen in your own strength, Moses. It's going to happen as I work through you. In Exodus 14, 16, they're trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. And God said, Moses, I want you to raise the staff over the water to divide it. And in verse 21, as Moses does that, it says, God sent an east wind, which the word wind in Hebrew is ruach, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. And what we see here is that as Moses is raising his staff, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters as he did at creation, and he opens up a way for the people to escape through the sea. And so Moses, yes, he's humble. Yes, he's been prepared. Yes, he's secure in who God has called him to be. But he still needed the empowering of the Spirit of God to accomplish what God is asking of him. There was a lot that Moses brought to the table. There was a lot that he contributed to the journey in order for it to happen. But there was also much that was beyond Moses' ability that only God by his Spirit could do. And Moses needed the empowering of the Spirit. Committed leadership involves what we are willing to bring to the table. What we will contribute to the process of what ultimately brings everything together for God's vision to be accomplished. But the difference maker, the difference maker is the empowering and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Throughout history, God has empowered His leaders with the Holy Spirit to do what He's called them to do at any given time since the creation of man. And that has not changed, and I would suggest that it will never change. 
Now, I've noticed a trend within our own denomination, and I'm, I'm being honest, a denomination that emphasizes the empowering of the Spirit for mission as one of the central, most significant tenets of our beliefs. That's at the core of who we are. And the trend is a lessening emphasis on the reliance of the Spirit for effective ministry. And instead, we're seeing an increased emphasis on technology and programming and production and personal ability and enhanced leadership skills. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've wandered down this road a few times myself because it's an easy trap to fall into. Because as human beings, we're always more comfortable focusing on what's within our control than we are in allowing God to do what only He can control. And so while all of these are good tools that God can use to accomplish His purposes, they are not a substitute for the empowering of the Spirit. They are not a substitute. We need the empowering of the Spirit. We need God to take what we bring the little that we feel it is, who we are, and by the power of the Spirit, use it to accomplish things that we could never accomplish in ourselves. Folks, EPC needs leaders on every level who rely on the empowering of the Spirit to lead as we should lead, to accomplish that all God desires to accomplish. There is no substitute. There is no program. There is no curriculum. There is no talent. There is no personnel we can hire. There is nothing we can do to replace and substitute the need for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. We need to be empowered by the Spirit. And fifthly and finally, Moses was godly. Now, when I use the word godly, what I mean is this. Moses knew what it meant to have genuine intimacy with God in his leadership. In fact, it was his intimacy with God that shaped his leadership, that gave direction to his leadership, that brought success to his leadership, that made sense of everything that he was doing. In Exodus 19.3, Moses went up to the mountain to meet with God as he often did, common practice in his life and in his leadership. And we're told that when he got there, God called to him, and God talked to him. In Exodus 33, 7 to 10, we're told that there's a tent pitched outside the camp called the Tent of Meeting. It's the place where Moses went to meet with God, to inquire of God. And we're told that whenever Moses went into the tent, the people would gather at the entrances of their own tent and watch and observe as the cloud or the pillar that represented God's presence in the midst of their camp descended down upon that tent and stay there as long as Moses was in the tent. And when he was done and he left the tent, the cloud would rise again. Intimacy with God. In Exodus 33:11 we read that the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And then he would return to the camp to lead. In Exodus 33:15 Moses said to God, "If your presence does not go with us, don't send us up from here." God, we have to have your presence. We have to have your intimacy. We can't do this without you in our lives. 
And so in Exodus 33, 17, God responds and says, it's okay, Moses, I'm going to do as you ask. I'm pleased with you. And I know you by name. I know you by name. In Exodus 34, 34, Moses came down from the mountain. I love this story. He didn't realize that there's a glow of God's glory on his face. And as he walks into the camp, people are afraid to come around him. And which eventually ends up with a veil covering his face. The people saw the glory of God on Moses when he met with God. And so we see here that Moses' intimacy with God was sincere and it was genuine and the people could see the evidence that their leader knew God and was with God. As I read that, I I, I can't tell you how, how humbling it is to read that. Because as your leader, there's no greater desire than I have than to be a leader who knows God intimately, but more than that, that the evidence of that is so obvious and inspiring to the people I lead. And as I read that story, I thought of how often I have failed that desire. I have learned in my life that you can know a lot about God and not know God intimately. You can know a lot about Him. You can quote verses. You can say all the books of the Bible in order. You know details that are so obscure that people go, I've never heard that story before. You can have years of theological training and study and read all kinds of books, and you know so much about God, but not know God intimately. May I suggest this morning that we will never be able to successfully move from here to there, from where we are to where God is leading us without leaders who know God intimately. Because knowledge about God will never get us there. It will never get us there. And so there are two things that I believe we must do to experience genuine, sincere Intimacy with God. The first, make it happen. Our lives are busy. Our lives are demanding. Our culture calls us to spend our time on so many things other than God. We look at our day, and often at the end of the day, there was no place for God. We had intentions, but it never happened. And as hard as it might be, We need to establish a time in our day that is solely devoted to intimacy with God. It has to be His. We have this idea that we do all this stuff and we try to fit Him in. No. Him, let's work the rest around it. That's how it has to be. And it has to be deliberate because it won't just happen. There are so many things that will try and rob it. And it's got to be more than us just listing off our wants and our needs. It's got to be reading His Word and waiting on God and listening to the prompting of the Spirit in our lives. Allowing God by His Spirit to minister to us, to speak to us, and to lead us. And it may mean getting up earlier than you normally would at an hour you didn't even know existed. 
That's what it might take for it to work for you. Or maybe for you, you're the opposite of me because I'd rather do early morning than late night anytime. 9.30 is God's intended time to go to sleep, right? I don't get there, but I sure try and my wife runs interference. For some of you, it might be later at night that you carve time at the end of your day or maybe something in the middle of your day has to go in order to make room for God. You see, intimacy will only happen if you make it happen. It won't just happen. you got to make it happen. And the second thing you got to do is you got to make it count. you got to make it count. Because time with God can easily transition from intimacy to obligation and habit and routine. And the result is we get up early. Or we stay up late. Or we gave up that something. And so we're, we're clearing the space. But, but when we get there, we fall back to sleep. Or we can't stay focused. Or we're thinking about all the things that we have to do. And we start going through the motions. We're reading for the sake of reading. We're praying on autopilot because we prayed so much we can just say it without even thinking about what we're saying. We're speaking without listening. We're encountering the presence of God without change, without increased compassion, and you increase humility in our lives. I've known people through my years of ministry who've annually read the Bible from cover to cover. They read all kinds of books and devotionals to go along with it. They pray their list every single day. But sadly, they have no concept of intimacy with God. You say, well, how can you know that? Well, I'll tell you how you know. When someone is intimate with God, it changes them. It changes them. When you genuinely encounter God, you don't leave the same. It changes you. It, it, it impacts you. It shapes your compassion. It changes how you show compassion to other people. If you're not able to show compassion, then your time with God's not working. It softens you. If you're not softening in the presence of God, it's not changing you. It changes your attitude. If you go into prayer and you leave with the same bad attitude, then you didn't connect with God. Because if you really connected with God, it would change your attitude. When you really connect with God, you become positive, not negative. If you're a perpetually negative person, and if you don't know who you are, ask someone who will tell you the truth. But maybe you're a perpetually negative person. But when you have intimacy with God, you become positive. But if you stay negative, then obviously it didn't work. People who have intimacy with God rejoice more than they complain. People who have intimacy with God care more about other people than they do themselves. People who have intimacy with God make the time and they make it count. They make the time, and they make it count. And when it comes to intimacy with God, we need leaders who will make it happen and will make it count so that those they lead will know without question that we have been with God. We know God. They can see it on us. Wouldn't it be great if our spouses and our kids could just stand back one day and instead of saying, what's wrong with him today? I mean, that's my goal. 
and go like, man, he must have been with God. He's just glowing with God. I get the other a lot more than that one, as I suspect most of you do. When it comes to intimacy with God, we need leaders who make it happen and make it count. So the people we need lead know without question that we know God. I'm going to invite our worship team back. Folks, if we're going to get from here to there, if we're going to get to where God is leading, we need committed leadership on every level at EPC. Leaders who are humble, who understand the difference between a good idea and a God idea and are willing to carry it out even if they don't feel qualified to do it. We need people who are prepared, who are willing to bring all of their life experiences and training that has brought them to this moment and said, in this moment, I'm bringing all of this, God, and I'm going to serve you with it. People who are going to be secure, they're not threatened by others, or, but willing to be a part of a team, willing to put themselves aside to work together to accomplish God's plan that is not about your ego. It's about the work of God, and I can put my ego aside so I can work together to accomplish it. We need to be empowered, recognizing that we bring what God asks us to bring, but we rely on the Spirit to take what we bring and elevate it to great accomplishment and godly. Those who make intimacy with God a priority by making it happen and making it count. Would you stand with me this morning? And as our worship team leads us today, I would like to invite you to two things today. I would like to invite the, worship, the prayer team to come so that if there are those of you who have a need in your life and you'd like someone to pray with you, then we're here to pray with you. But I want to invite you this morning that as the worship team leads us in worship and as we reflect on our own lives, that we evaluate our lives and we commit ourselves to God and say, God, I want to be a committed leader. I want to do these things that we've talked about this morning. I want to exhibit those characteristics in my own life. I want to be a part of this. I want to believe that God has brought me to the kingdom, to this place, at this moment in time, to do something significant for you. And I don't want to miss it. I want to be a part of it. I want to get involved in it. I don't want to sit back like the other disciples and watch Peter out there floundering on the water and doing well and then failing and criticizing while I sit in the boat. I want to be out on the water. I want to take those steps. I want to, I want to respond and do. That's the kind of leader I want to be. And if that's where your heart is this morning, I want you to communicate that to God and allow His Spirit to show you in your life how you can be a part of that. 